Hello and welcome back to another episode of season two of the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. I'm your host, Managing Director of the ITA, Dave Mullins. Today my guest is Danielle McNamara. Danielle is in her second stint as the head women's tennis coach at Yale. From 2006 to 2014, she led the team to four Ivy League titles and a 124 to 49 record. She returned to Yale in 2016 and her team has experienced one of the best seasons during Danielle's tenure before the season was shut down due to COVID-19. In this podcast, we discuss Danielle's move into the head coaching role at Yale at just 25 years old, her decision to step away from college coaching only to be lured back in by the University of Texas. She also shares why Yale was ultimately the best fit for her, how other coaches can think about where to take their talents and some ideas she has implemented at Yale to grow closer connections with her community. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Danielle. Danielle McNamara, thank you for coming on the ITA College Coaches Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we... uh, we have a few different directions we're going to go in today, so so I'm looking forward to, to where this takes us and we'll see for the next 45, 60 minutes or so, uh, but I think we can cover a lot of ground. So um, I just want to take you to back to kind of your your playing days and, and your career after college. You played a little bit professionally, but at what point in either your college career or even maybe before college or while you were playing professionally, did you figure out that you wanted a life as a college tennis coach? Yeah, I think that the first time I really thought about it was when I was in college playing college tennis. Um, I had an amazing experience at Michigan, and um, I think I realized later on in my career that whenever my or my my college career that whenever my kind of competitive playing days were over, that I definitely wanted to try out um, college coaching. Yeah. And and so then what kind of role did you play on your team that influenced that? I think you were maybe captain a couple of times at Michigan. And so, so, and did, was there any words of advice from other coaches you spoke to? How did you kind of have a sense you maybe had the, the makeup to, to succeed in this profession? <laughs> Yeah, I think it just in my gut, I just felt like it combined. It was a job that combined so many things that I loved. Um, I love tennis. I love competition. Um, definitely the the leadership aspect of it and being on the team, obviously in a different role as a coach, but you're still a leader in, in just a different form. And um, I was so grateful for my experience as a player and, and saw like the difference that a coach can make on an individual, like not just as a tennis player, but, but as a person and how much you can help shape them. And that really appealed to me. Um, and I wanted to just try it out on the other side as kind of more of the, the coach versus the player. And so how did your college tennis experience shape you? I mean, how were you a different person when, when you graduated from Michigan? Oh my God. I, well, I came in uh, 17 years old, an only child that had never really been away from home uh, too much and, you know, thrown into this large public university on a team. I mean, it's, I mean, I knew absolutely nothing. I probably thought I knew it all and I knew nothing. And, um, you know, both a combination of my teammates and the influence that they had on me. I had great senior leadership my freshman year. And I remember they just whipped me into shape in like every form. (laughs) 
Um, and I also, I had great, you know, assistant coach and, and head coach, um, you know, just taught me in so many moments, like small moments, things you know, like just life skills, but, but also just like what it meant to be part of a team. I, I played high school tennis, but that doesn't even really compare to the experience you have in college. And it was a bit of a foreign concept to me coming in. And um, I think that was probably the biggest transition that, that I made was just understanding like, you know, how to really work well in the group and understand what your role is. And then as I got older, sort of how to do that and, and influence and lead the younger players and, and make a difference and lead others, not just myself. So it was a tremendous uh, formative years of my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of college coaches relate to that definitely can and and uh yeah it's because of that experience and the changes you go through it's it's why it kind of uh becomes a very attractive profession because you want to have a similar impact on others so who or what circumstances influenced how or or continue to influence how you go about your job as a college tennis coach today yeah, I mean, I really, I think that uh, my parents uh, have definitely influenced how I go about my job today, just in terms of sort of my my values and um, what I what I believe in, and and I think that that shapes our you know a lot of our program and and what I try to teach our players. Um, I would definitely say my husband. I've learned so much from him as well, uh, just in terms of working with people. And he, we have very different personalities. And, and I think he's taught me a lot that has helped me become a better coach and shaped me and my viewpoint. Um, certainly my college coaches and my teammates. Um, and I have a lot of, uh, you know, colleagues in coaching um, that I actually grew up playing tennis with that are still in, in coaching like myself. And I learn a lot from them and, and they help shape me as, as well. And is there any particular, well, there's probably several, but is there something maybe you look back on, you fared, you know, to, to when you came into college as a 17 year old, thinking you knew more than, than you actually did. And, and I think as coaches, uh, probably as human beings, every few years we look back at the person we were five years ago and, and maybe cringe a little bit and go, I can't believe I thought I knew it all back then. I was pretty clueless. But are there any circumstances that maybe you look back on that, again, has, has changed or influenced the way you, you coach and run your probe today? Any specific circumstances? Yeah. Is there, is there, um, is there an experience that you had maybe a year you went through, you know, with a particular team, um, a group of players, maybe one player that maybe you made some mistakes, maybe, you know, yeah. you, you feel like I, I didn't handle that situation as well as I should have. I, I, and, and if I got that opportunity again, I do X, Y, and Z yeah. differently. Yeah, comes absolutely. To um, as a coach, you know, especially earlier on in my career, certainly before I had a family, I would say that I was, um, you know, maybe a little bit more intense than I am now. Um, you know, your priorities sort of shift a little bit. Your focus shifts a little bit when you have a family. And I think that, you know, maybe I would, um, my expectations and the way that I would communicate with players before, um, you know, was a little bit more intense just in general, rather than maybe like learning to 
have those open conversations a little bit more and and hear all different sides of things and and really that that I definitely have changed. I can think about one of my um, later teams before I sort of stepped away from Yale in 2014 and and just uh, I mean, we had done, we were doing very very well. It was one of our better teams and but I just feel like you know that the necessity of being on the same page and the communication and how to motivate different people like varies obviously from person to person. I learned a lot that year and I think that really helped me moving forward to today. Very good. And yeah, definitely want to go back to your your early days at Yale and and if I get some of the timeline wrong here, Danielle, I apologize, but 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 I reading your bio and, and knowing a little bit about you, you you were maybe volunteer assistant coach at Michigan. Were you volunteer or full-time assistant? I was the full full-time assistant for uh, one year right out of college. Right out of college, and then you were volunteer at Boston while you were playing a little bit, yep. and then yep. yeah, so you had some some college coaching experience, kind of either side of your your professional playing career. Uh, but then you had maybe one year as as the assistant coach at Yale, and then mm-hmm. and were offered the the head coaching position uh, after just one year. So did that opportunity when it presented itself, is that something you felt like you were ready for? Were you intimidated by it? How how were you feeling about that when that, that came along? Yeah, I was really excited and I felt ready for it. Although in retrospect, you know, I feel like you could always benefit maybe from a little bit more experience. But at the time, I think having had the year as the assistant coach at Yale, um, you know, really made all the difference in the world because I had a chance to kind of see what the program, where the program was at that time, the potential that I thought it had. And then I was able to really, I think, articulate kind of a long-term vision for the program based on that year. Um, and I think that without that, I'm not so sure I would have gotten the job because I was young and inexperienced really. Um, but I really felt like I could make a difference and that it was a program that could really, you know, jump significantly and I was excited about that and I felt ready to do that because I kind of already knew about the university and the athletic department so I had that confidence there and I knew the players um so that's so I would say I was more excited um cautiously optimistic I guess (laughs) and looking back are there any skills you would have liked to have more time to cultivate or do you think for your career was better to kind of maybe being thrown into the deep end a little bit and just you know cultivate those skills a little faster rather than leaving them to chance over, over a longer period of time as an assistant yeah i mean i think you know it- I don't think it would have hurt to have more recruiting experience or more experience with player development and all of that. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, I think we learned pretty quickly as we went and things did work out and and certainly made a lot of mistakes along the way. But I'm I'm glad that I went for that job when it was open and, and, um, you know, I was really lucky to have a great, a great assistant coach is actually Christelle, who, who you worked with as a player um, right off the bat and then Christian Thompson and, so I was really lucky that I was working with great people that had, um, you know, similar vision. So, yeah. So what were, so you, you transitioned from assistant to head coach. I think a lot of, you know, coaches listening will, will go through that transition at the same program. So, so they know the players pretty well, they know their surroundings. Um, but what were maybe some of the, 
the first few things you recognize that were a little bit different. Okay, yep. I'm a head coach now. You know, these my priorities have shifted, and and what are maybe some of the the tasks that you look to accomplish maybe in the first three to six months as as the head coach versus the assistant. Yeah. Well, I can say that I never really had a sleepless night as an assistant coach. And that quickly changed as the head coach, because you, you feel the weight of the responsibility of the program, right? So you're pretty much responsible for it all, not just the results, but everything that goes on the day to day and what your team represents, which is, which I felt that. Um, I think also I was pretty young. I was 26, I think, or 25 at the time. And so I was, you know, relatively close in age to the players. And Mm -hmm. I think I I had earned their respect from the year as the assistant, but it's a transition, right? So like now it was, um, you know, they, you're just naturally viewed a little bit differently by the players when you're the head coach versus the assistant coach, more of an authoritative figure. And, and so I tried to figure out that balance of, okay, how can I still have those close relationships with them? But also, you know, I'm now the head coach and I'm kind of calling the shots more than I was as the assistant coach. So sort of how do I strike that balance and working through that? And then just really those early months, I think it was about laying down the foundation of what we wanted the program to be all about, you know? So, um, you know, what, what were the values and the goals and the standards that we were going to run the program by? And, and, and I think that's early on what we really focused, um, focused on. And, and did you deal with much pushback from the players as to those new elevated standards and also kind of how they viewed you? Oh, she, Danielle used to be so nice and now she's really mean as the head coach. <laughs> or was there any of that? And, and how did you deal with it? No, you know, I, um, yeah, I think that there were some people that really bought in right away. And I think this is all, I mean, change is always hard, um, no matter where you are or, or what school you're talking about. Um, so yeah, some people I think were really excited and bought in right away. Others maybe a little bit more resistant or cautious, but, um, I, I think that for the most part, people were excited. And, and I, I think, you know, in part why I, why I got the job is because I had the support of the players um, in that hiring process and they knew what I was about. And I think they wanted me to stick around. Um, and so I think I kind of started off in a fairly good place as far as all of that went. I was very fortunate. Yeah. Okay. So over the next eight seasons, you won four Ivy League titles. You uh, produced 124 wins, 49 loss record, um, and then decided to step away from from college tennis. Uh, can you talk us through that that decision and why that makes sense at that point of your life? Yeah. Um, so I in the 2013-14 year, I was pregnant with our second child. So I we had a three-year-old at the time, and I was due to have our second child in August of 2014. And um, my husband's you know works full time as well, and I think just the demands of uh, college coaching two full-time working parents and one small child and another one on the way just kind of made a family decision that, you know, it was, it was, it would be best to kind of just step away from coaching at that point and just focus on, on family. Um, and so that was why I decided to leave at that time. And, and was that a very difficult decision for you at that time or, 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 you know, how, did, did you think at some point you might come back to college 
coaching several years later or? Yeah, that was the plan. It was definitely a very okay. difficult decision. Um, but, uh, but the idea was that I really wanted to get back into college coaching eventually. I didn't know when, um, but if there was an opportunity down the road, I, I, I definitely wanted to get back in. I loved it. Um, so that, that was the thinking. So that opportunity obviously came a little <laughs> faster than you, you anticipated and and you get a call from from Texas and obviously the allure of the University of Texas I think for any college coach is 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 massive and probably a dream job or destination job for for a lot of people uh, but ultimately it wasn't the right fit for you why, why was that and, and what brought you back to you really it was just not a great fit for family reasons um and so it was a kind of a family decision to come back to Connecticut. Um, I came back to Connecticut without having another job to to go to. I was essentially, you know, stay at home mom for for one year. We came back, you know, the summer of 2015. So that 2015 to 16 year, I was yeah, I was a stay at home mom with a with a one year old and a four year old, which to be honest with you, could have been the hardest job of my life so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I learned a ton. I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that time. But at, but at the same time, I think it really um, made clear to me that I just, I missed college coaching so much, but I also think that I missed coaching at Yale. Like there was something very special about it. And um, it was hard being so close. You know, I was like a mile down the road from campus and yet feel so far away from something that you just had put so much time and energy into and people that you cared a lot about. And um, I missed those relationships, honestly. So when uh, the, the 20, geez, the 20, 16, uh, you know, that spring, the position opened up again. Um, you know, I remember looking at my husband being like, what do you think? <laughs> you know, I, I really, this really, really appeals to me. And so kind of just reached out and ended up coming back. Wow. And then, uh, yes. Yeah, so what are some of maybe the, the differences that, that you see between you know, kind of a, a power five program and, and an Ivy League uh, program because they're obviously in, they're both division one and, you know, both uh, are very capable of, of, of you know, having great team and, and recruiting the, the best of the best. But what, what are some of the, the differences that, you know, people like myself or other coaches out there may not truly understand the, the key differences between the two other than the obvious of, of not having scholarships to provide? Yeah. So I think you're right. I think that in recent years on both the men's and women's side of of tennis, if you look at the results, I mean, the Ivy League has just really, really improved in terms of level of play. I mean, you you look and see some of the best players in the country um, pretty consistently choosing to go to Ivy League schools. And and, um, it's exciting. And I think that you know, obviously there are, there, there are budget, budgetary differences between power five schools and Ivy league schools. I mean, um, as far as athletics go, it, it, you know, but, but notwithstanding that, I think that we're still able, I mean, we have great facilities and, and, um, you know, we, uh, we have the same strength of schedule and, and all of that. I think, you know, the experience as a student athlete, I mean, the, the student part of student athlete is like, 
an incredibly high demand here. And so, you know, it just kind of depends what experience you want. Um, I think that they're, you know, they're, they're definitely, um, you know, we, we have to, I think, be maybe a little bit more flexible and, and, and work around that's the student uh, demands. Um, But that doesn't mean that the tennis is any less important to any of them. They really, oftentimes these players were recruited by power five programs, but just Mm -hmm. felt more of a fit at an Ivy league school for, for whatever reason. So um, yeah, they're really unique places, but I think they're just uh, really incredible um, and can offer so much to the students, not just in terms of tennis, but just the overall experience. Mm -hmm. And then uh, love to talk to you about kind of how coaches can maybe find the right fit for themselves. You've like, you played at Michigan, coached at Michigan, Boston, U, um, you know, then at Yale and your experience at Texas, you, you know, so you've seen some, some different sides of it. And ultimately you felt like you're at, at this point in your life, especially your, your best fit is, is Yale in the Ivy league. Um, so how would you encourage or help coaches develop, that self-awareness and, and try to understand, you know, what level of coaching, maybe what gender, you know, they, they prefer mm-hmm. to coach. Um, and, and can you kind of talk through, through that a little bit and what advice you'd have for coaches? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think talking to other coaches is one of the, the best things I would encourage people to do is, um, you know, asking questions and just, uh, you know, figuring out what, different people's experiences have been like, like, just like you're asking me, what are, what are the pros and cons? What do you think the experience might be like? Um, That's certainly very helpful. And I'm sure that there are lots of coaches out there that would be happy to take that call, even if it was from a coach that they may not necessarily know. Um, And I would also say, I mean, there's no, there's no substitute for experience itself. So to the extent that someone can get that experience, whether it's as a volunteer coach or, you know, being an assistant for a little while somewhere, I mean, I think that's, that's hard to beat. Um, but I think you only know by trying and by talking to other people, you can do as much homework as possible, but you just have to kind of put yourself out there and kind of know yourself well too. I think that, uh, if you can really ask yourself, like, what are your priorities and what do you want to be able to do? And, um, then trying to find that best fit. I think that's probably the way I would approach it. Yeah. Cause a lot of us are, are wired to, you know, aim for that University of Texas job, right? That should be our goal. That's the expectation you should be striving to to be at, you know, quote unquote, the best, you know, or the top athletic department or whatever it is. And and uh, I think you found out and I found out a little bit as well. It's it's not all it's cracked up to be. And um, it's, it's uh, I've, I've had this discussion with other podcasts as well, but definitely for young coaches out there, um, that's fine to have that goal. Absolutely. But don't close your mind off to some other opportunities and, and some other places that you may actually be a better fit for. Um, but maybe you just have to go through it to, exactly. <laughs> to uh, <laughs> listen to, to what we just said. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Um, obviously been a, a, look, a challenging year for 
everybody around the world, um, not not just in college tennis, but uh, within the the college tennis landscape. Obviously, particularly tough year for Division Three and for the Ivy League. Um, you know, who uh, for the Ivy League haven't been able to play at all this year, um, and probably still un- uncertain as to what's happening in the summer and the fall, and trying to figure out your schedule. But what are maybe some lessons you've learned through all of this? Um, that you think you'll continue to apply when things get back to normal, whatever normal is going to be? Yeah. I mean, we've, I, gosh, we've missed uh, competing so much. It's been a really hard year for a lot of student athletes, but um, I think that, you know, we've spent a lot of time this year as best we could. Our, our players were spread out all over the country. We had very few that were on campus. So, um, you know, I think we we learned how much we uh, love being together um, and how much we miss that and how much we're looking forward to all being together. And, you know, there are ups and downs for sure. Like anyone, a season is long, right? I mean, even in a good year, you've got some challenging moments. And But I think that it just gave us such a greater appreciation for um, being able to to see each other and, and compete and play together. Um, for And so we've also had a chance to work on some things I think that we maybe don't normally have quite as much time to work on when we're in season. So we've done a ton of Zoom calls where we, um, Elise, our assistant coach, and I kind of put together almost uh, like classroom sessions, if you will, on topics that we thought our team needed to to try to talk through and unrelated to forehands and backhands, but more just like leadership development and like culture on our team and communication, these kinds of things that I think really make a big difference um, that I hope we'll see pay off when we do finally get back together in, in the fall. So. Yeah. So th- those will continue throughout the summer and, and something that you'll, you'll keep a close eye on and try to, to repeat in the fall, especially with yeah. the, the new players. Exactly right. Yeah, we're looking to continue, um, continue as best we can through the summer and then pick up in the fall. And um, we've even been starting to have some of our incoming freshmen do some of the exercises that we did with our current team. Um, And that's been really interesting for them, I think, and sort of see how they are going to integrate in with the the players that we have returning. So, yeah, that's the plan. And is there is there one particular exercise that's maybe stood out to you that you think maybe worked well and, and the, the players got something out of it or the team got something out of it? Would you be able to provide an example? Yeah, sure. So we did um, we have the whole team take the disc profile assessment and um, and then we we went over all the results of everyone's disc profile and then sort of did a deeper dive into, you know, based on each individual's profile and those characteristics, um, you know, how would you best communicate with that person? Like, how does this person deal with conflict? And it just was very eye-opening. It made a ton of sense for a lot of, you know, when we know each other so well, but I also thought it really um, raised our level of awareness. So maybe like how to, um, you know, work through things a little bit more effectively with teammates or coach to, t- coach to player. Um, that was a great exercise. And then there was another, we, we worked through, um, um, a book. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by uh, Patrick Lencioni. And um, I, we, did, we did an assessment and we worked through kind of all these different exercises on how to overcome the five dysfunctions of a team um, based on our assessment. 
And uh, that, that was also very interesting and helpful, I think. Yeah. And then with the, um, the, uh, disc profile, how will you go about remembering who's who, like, is there, is there any trick you found? Like if you're on the court and you want to say something to somebody, how do you remember, Oh, this, (laughs) this person is that. And is there any, is it just continuing to study it and keep it up in your office and remind yourself of it a daily basis or any ideas around that? Honestly, we, we've talked about this so much that I just have it memorized. (laughs) I mean, we don't have that many people. It's only 11 players. So, um, but, but the results were so interesting. We really did talk about it so much that I could tell you right now, like who's who and who's what, um, I, I still need to remind myself though, about what that means in terms of like practically communicating with them, but what they are, I do remember. <laughs> yeah. So it might just be getting back out in the court and on trips and, you know, testing yourself in the, maybe the heat of the moment. And, and can you recall what, what, yeah. uh, how this person uh, likes to get their feedback. So, okay, well, well I'll check in with you on that yeah. later day. <laughs> Uh, see how you're doing. So moving on a little bit to kind of the, the bigger picture. I mean, you've been serving on IA committees. You're currently on the, the ITA board of directors. Um, you're involved in the, the Division I um, uh, Snodgrass Partners study into the D1 model, and, and you're on one of the working groups there. Um, so you have a good sense of kind of what's going on in the in the greater landscape of of intercollegiate athletics not just tennis but if you were the the tennis commissioner or tennis czar college tennis czar for the day and could snap your fingers make an immediate change to increase the relevancy of college tennis what might that be and why yeah i've thought about this question um i honestly think that i would change the format to, I don't know exactly what that format would look like, but I know that it would be much shorter than it currently is. And so I maybe it would be a simultaneous format. Um, but I think that, you know, we've talked a lot in all of these groups, the working group and so, and so on about how we can attract and retain more fans, both like from a campus and local level, but also a national level. And I mean, I just think that the sport has a problem or has something, a challenge, maybe we'll say it like that, when like your own personal family and friends, you know, even they are struggling to make it through the college match of the people that they love and care for. And you know what I mean? I mean, my husband will be the first one to tell you he's been to countless tennis matches and they're long and 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 if we want to if we want to attract fans and we want to make it an exciting event i think we really have to take a look at the format and make it shorter um and people love doubles i think that's really you know the the recreational fan is is it's exciting, you know, so maybe having that be played while the singles is going on in a simultaneous shorter format would also, you know, just make it more exciting, make them want to come back. Even if you get them in the door, they have to have a good experience to want to come back again and maybe bring a friend. And I think the current format that we have, I'm not so sure that it's doing that. Yeah. And so when people say, well, we, we changed the format a few years ago and we shortened it and, you know, it didn't necessarily bring more fans or interest from TV or anything like that. 
your how would you push back on that? It's just it's still not short enough. I yeah, mean, we didn't didn't go far enough. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I know that debate will will be on. So, um, okay. Anything else you can think of in in that regard? I mean, just thinking about. Um, yeah, just just you know the impact COVID has had on on many athletic departments and the fallout of that for for several years to come. Is there anything else that that coaches could be doing, or maybe even just as you think about your own program as you head into the twenty one twenty two season, and hopefully it's it's a normal season, but you going about making your tennis program as relevant as it can be within the athletic department and within the greater community there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I definitely think that COVID has um, really put a spotlight on uh, tennis and, and I think coaches um, need, you know, it's necessary now that we're doing the job description, I think has changed for a college division one college coach in that, you know, we really have to focus on a lot more than just, you know, tennis and scheduling and recruiting. But I think, like you said, like making your program relevant um, in the community on your campus and, you know, how we try to do that is, um, well, one way is to really engage with the decision makers on campus as best we can and build those relationships. So, you know, we do that in a number of different ways, but um, we, we invite those decision makers to matches. Um, sometimes we'll do pro and or I guess for, you know, kind of like sessions with them where we'll invite them out to play with the team, the men's team and the, and the women's team and kind of get to know the players and the coaches. And oftentimes those people do play tennis or they like tennis. And so they, they'll take you up on that offer. Um, same thing with the, you know, within our department, you know, our athletic director really likes tennis. And so we're, you know, that's great. Like we love, you know, to, to have her come out and, and hit and, and get to know our players. And, um, I think same thing at a community level, um, getting to know, you know, clubs in your area and high school coaches in your area. And it, it's really, I feel like it comes back to building relationships and that takes time and that takes energy. And maybe for some coaches that already is a priority, but if for those that maybe it isn't as big of a priority, I think COVID has made it clear that it's probably something that we should all be focusing on for our programs and, and for our sport. Yeah. So how, I mean, as things open up there more and more in the summer, in the fall, how do you go about scheduling that relationship building or, uh, you know, those various different events? Is it, is it something that you keep in a calendar? Is it something yeah. just you remember, oh, we haven't done this for a while or, or how much, I guess, attention and energy do you put to it and, and reinvent it on a yearly basis? Yeah, it's quite a bit. Um, and it's not just me, it's our assistant coach, or if you have a volunteer coach, director of ops, what, whoever you have on your staff that is able to help with this. Um, I feel like there's always work that can be done. So yeah, we try to kind of have like a master calendar of, of what the events we're trying to do. So some other things, you know, we've, we've held high school coaches clinics before, um, where we'll invite all the high school coaches in the area to come out and the men's coach and I will kind of run a workshop for them. And then they'll that their teams will come and watch the match after the workshop. So that, you know, that's something we try to put on this master calendar um, or we'll have a youth day, you know, to kick off the season where last year, or I guess it would have been 2019. We did this with the men's team and, you know, we had probably a hundred kids um, come and just, it was a one-time free clinic, you know, under the, under 
ninth grade and get to know the players. Again, I feel like when, when the out, you know, outside community can get to know you and your players, then they're more likely to come back. And that's exactly what happened. So some of those kids who got to hit with a, a young man or woman on the tennis team, and they had a ton of fun, they want to come back and watch that person play, you know, and when they want to come back, mom and dad kind of have to come back. And then maybe they bring a friend. And if we have a really exciting format, they want to come back again. And, you know, um, so we, we have this master calendar, we have these events and these things we try to do we put it on there we also have pretty regular email communication with various groups to try to just like keep them in the loop um, another thing we've done we don't really have it going at the moment but through our um, Yale campus you know student club and organization uh, department we were able to start up and get some funding from the university uh, a fan club and so we called it the Blue Aces. We actually had a website. Um, we had little like membership cards. So if you came to a match, you would get it punched and, and then you would kind of work your way to earning prizes and we'd send email blasts out and have events. And so, I mean, it was a lot of work, but it, it really, we had a logo and banners and t-shirts and um, I think that once you kind of get it up and running, if you're willing to do that kind of work on any of these events, then they kind of just run themselves a lot easier. So, so, you know, again, engage your staff, anyone you can, or even some volunteers from your local community. Maybe you have some retirees who have some time on their hands that love tennis, that love your university, ask them to help you and, you know, do some of these tasks. I'm sure that they would be, you know, willing to do that. So what point in your career, Danielle, did you figure out the importance of this? Is this something that sat with you throughout your career or something that's become more important through the years? Um, you know, I think I think we we've we've been doing parts of this for a while. I think it's grown over time, you know, added things over time. Um, our men's I've been really fortunate that the the men's coaches that I've worked with have have shared a similar I guess, passion for this. And so we've worked together on a lot of these initiatives um, and that's been really helpful. And, and I've gotten some great ideas from them as well. And so, um, but even, even if that's not necessarily the setup for you, I think, you know, maybe just start with one event or one thing and, and really get that going and then think about what might be your next most effective or efficient thing to add to the calendar and just slowly grow it. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. You don't have to do it all at once. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice, Danielle. So onto our rapid fire round, you've already named a, a book that you're working with right now with your team, but is there another book that's made a major impact on you as a coach? Yeah, I would say um, Wooden on Leadership by John Wooden is definitely one. I have all my incoming freshmen read it the summer before they get here. And uh, I'm a huge John Wooden fan. Love that book. Yeah. One of my goals this summer, Danielle, is to listen back to all 49 podcasts and get a list of, of the books that all the coaches mention and, and give it to all the, the coaches. So I'm, I'm on the record now. So I, I know I'll follow through with it. After nice. saying this <laughs> I like that. So, yeah, I think, I think coaches will enjoy that. Do you have a favorite drill? Uh, yeah, I kind of like this uh, no bounce game or drill that we do. It's more for doubles, but 
yeah, essentially the ball can't bounce on one side of the net. And so it forces you to, to really, uh, you know, cover, cover well. <laughs> and is that a doubles or, or yeah. singles, like half court singles or both? Yeah, it's doubles. So um, it's basically uh, two people start at the baseline or everyone starts back on the baseline, both sides. One side feeds in a short ball that both players have to come to the net off of. That's the only ball that can bounce on that side. So once that team gets up to the net, um, after that, nothing can bounce. So you really have to cover and shift and then cover that lob, communicate. And then on the side that's back, you know, you have to try to create space and find holes to get into. If you let, if, if you are able to get the ball to bounce as the two backside, you get three points. Um, otherwise, whoever wins the point gets one. So that's pretty fun. Okay. Um, name one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, whether it's in coaching or life or both. Oh my God. Yeah, I've been thinking about this one a lot. This is hard. I've changed my mind on so much. <laughs> um, yep. It's hard to pick one thing. Jeez. Uh, I don't, Dave, this one, might, I might have to pass. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. You keep thinking about it for a few more months. Okay. Um, what is your favorite quote? So actually my favorite quote, it's more like an excerpt from a speech. It's a Theodore Roosevelt speech. Um, he gave in like 1910, but it's otherwise most famously known as the man in the arena, the expert yep. excerpt. Um, love, love that. Yeah. that part yeah i do too that's awesome and what's one lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they graduate you know i just really hope that they learn that um like there's they, they can whatever you want to do like don't sell yourself short like set your set big goals and go for it and and whatever it is like it's about the process like i think that's one thing i really hope that they learn that like whether or not you ultimately achieve that big goal don't not set it because you're afraid to, to fail like go for it and enjoy the process and no matter what happens like that that process is what's really going to to be the experience you know it's it's not always necessarily about winning or losing so very good well danielle thank you so much for your time today and and all the advice you've provided our coaches this afternoon uh, really appreciate it i really hope you guys get back to, to competition this fall and and uh, get back into to your flow and and uh how it should be as a, as a college coach and working yeah, with your players and, and out there competing. So good luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it.